0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I have a special guest today, Rosemary Kifo. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: You know, you have extensive background in media. And I couldn't read all that. So I'm asking you could you help our listeners understand your background in media? How did you start?
2: Oh, well, I was a television news reporter. uh, And uh, then I was a uh, radio, current affairs radio talk show host. And I also was the uh, managing editor of a women's, professional women's magazine. And I wrote my memoir, and I write about grief and addiction. So I'm a journalist in print, radio, and broadcast.
1: Where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on the last house on St. Clair, in the last house on St. Clair, east of Mount Pleasant. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's
2: always what we told people, that's where the house was. It was on a ravine. Uh, It was a residential neighborhood. It was... Anything you would think to be a normal residential neighborhood, but it was one of those places where the outside was the facade, and inside our facade was chaos. So I grew up in a chaotic family with an alcoholic father and a enabling mother, and four kids. I was the youngest of four, and there were my father was not going to have any children or pets, but he ended up with four kids, two cats, and two Saint Bernards, and he was alcoholic. So. That's uh, that is part of the story.
1: So, what were your childhood influences, growing up in in such a home?
2: Well, I, in in hindsight, I learned that you are as sick as your secrets because we lived a big secret. We lived in a house of chaos. Um, the outside was a nice, large mansion type looking house, uh, and you'd go inside and there'd just be complete chaos and that there'd be two dogs and two cats and four kids and a, a father who was probably either be drunk or hungover, mm. who would be raging. And my mother was a real penny pincher. So she would have to, we'd be hiding things from father all the time, mm. hiding expenses. We would have to hide, we'd get home. And if we had them saw the mail, we'd have to hide the mail because there would be bills in it, and he might see the bills, and he might rage when he saw the bills. Hmm. So she was very uh, resourceful in in learning how to pay bills and things without him knowing what the expenses were. She got she got us to to private schools somehow. Uh, she did things like my mom was a writer, she, and which was interesting because I ended up being a writer. But she would get up in the in the middle of the night and write a a syndicated column for newspapers. Mm. And it was like three in the morning and she'd get up and write a column and I would get up with her and I would be studying in like grade nine, grade 10, the Courier du Bois, history, Canadian history, uh, North American history, um, the Courier du Bois were the people from France who came and traded with the, uh, the indigenous people, the furs, and my mom would be tip-topping away in the kitchen on her Olivetti typewriter, and I would be in the living room on the couch reading my history book, mm. and uh, we'd make toast and tea. And the interesting thing is that I eventually, and now that's when I work, three or four o'clock in the morning, that's when I get up and write.
1: <laughs> and that's
2: what she used to do. And the other sort of ironic part of that is that my mother would write a column on, called Susanna's Family Affair, which was about household hints So she was a domestic column, but my mother was the furthest thing from domestic. All this very, very intricate and very interesting. But I was the youngest of four. And my father had a difficult relationship with both my brothers, was boy, girl, boy, girl. Mm. And I would argue with them and would yell at my mother. And I was sort of left out. Which was kind of like a good thing. Yeah, I was I, I was not really drawn into the chaos. I was like a, a bystander, and I always felt like I was protected in a very very strange way. Mm. And something that was very revealing when I got sober in two thousand and two. One year later, I took my daughters to the Betty Ford. I wrote about this in my book, uh, Family Week. From with my and my daughters were 13 and 15 and I was a year sober and we took a family week program to help all three of us kind of decipher how we're going to get back to some kind of reality, some kind of normalcy functional functional equ- equilibrium as opposed to a dysfunctional equilibrium, which is a whole story about the family systems theory. and I learned that all that chaos that happened in our house was a secret. When I became clean and sober, I realized you were as sick as your secrets. Hmm. And I also learned from my mother. She instilled this into us is to always, always ask questions. To the point that even at the beginning of this interview, before we started recording, I was declared my discomfort with being asked questions because I'm so used to asking questions. And that was so much part of me. I became a journalist who asks the questions.
1: <laughs> it looks like your mom actually modeled what your life would become when you were young. It's like she saw that gift in you and encouraged you to begin to prepare for it. That's a special mother right there.
2: The wonderful thing my mother did. Yeah. <laughs> So mother provided speech lessons for Rosemary, who could not say her R's and her S's. And <laughs> her name was Rosemary Perrette. So I was actually Rosemary Poet. Interestingly enough, Wozmawi Poet went into broadcasting when I was did my audio book for my The Art of Losing It, my memoir. I insisted on doing the audio part of it because I was a broadcaster and I was going to do it. I wasn't going to pay someone else to do it. Yeah. For some reason, that my mom, insisting that I ask questions. It it actually steered me into a career in journalism. Yes. And so, in the university newspaper, I, I would in high school and university, I worked for the newspapers. And then eventually I took my Bachelor of Journalism and got into uh, TV news reporting and radio broadcasting and the and, and uh, the news the magazine. And I eventually went back and got my Master's in Journalism and wrote my memoir.
1: Well, that will take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soled and We continue our conversation with Rosemary. Um, Your book, The Art of Losing It, what was the uh, motivation for writing the book?
2: Well, I had a story to tell. I was never not going to write about it. It was just a matter of what form it was going to take. But I had two tragic deaths in my life at the same time. I was a young mother, uh, 36 years old, and my husband was 41. And uh, we had two young children, two girls, two and four years old. My husband got sick with cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he had, he was, the prognosis was uh, without chemo, he'd be dead in six weeks. This was from a sore knee. And with chemo, it would be a year. And within a couple of weeks of that diagnosis, my brother, who was 41 as well, was diagnosed with AIDS. And this was uh, 1991. So AIDS was a death sentence. So they both had these terminal diagnoses within a month of each other, and I was uh, trying to be this young mother, and I was trying to have a career, and obviously that all went out the window and I was in a frenzied, in kind a of frenzied year of uh, caring for uh, my my brother and my husband my brother was in Vancouver British Columbia which is where I was living as well so the rest of the family was back east so I was responsible for his care within the year they had both died and I hung in there with the girls but within six years I uh, had developed a addiction to drugs and alcohol so I was in my addiction addiction for six years and then I became sober and and, and then eventually, once I was sober for a number of years, I realized I needed to write about the book, about this book, this the story. And uh, as it turns out, the writing about the story was therapeutic, as well as ultimately, I realized, well, if this even helps one person, then then i'm I'm in the right direction, then I've been um, successful in this world.
1: And you, you, you've you done a lot. I mean, you've helped a lot of people. Uh, was it uh, the grief that led to the addiction or were you addicted before uh, the deaths in your life?
2: Well, it was the grief. I was probably a good candidate for uh, alcoholism and addiction because of my father. And I was able to hang in there for a long time with I mean when I was in my 20s I dappled and I played around with with marijuana and some LSD and I was very experimental but then when I married my late husband uh, he didn't do any kind of drugs at all but he had a wine cellar so that was always a, 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 a source but <laughs> and didn't wasn't until about 6 years after he and my brother died Mm-hmm. One night I was I was doing a radio show with someone who I call Mr. Wrong, and he had brought over some cocaine one night. And when I tried this cocaine, it was the answer to all my problems. So this was my turning point. This is where I crossed the line. I got I was addicted that moment. So that was six years after. Uh, they had died. Mm. I think I was just running on energy and grief, but not processing anything. Yeah. So when I was able to, when I had this cocaine, it just numbed everything. And then it spiraled and there was cocaine and alcohol. Basically, I like to call fine white wine, <laughs> buttery <laughs> Chardonnay to make it's- it sound better.
1: <laughs>
2: so it was um it was the grief i was i was numbing the grief i was numbing the feeling i was numbing the stress it was the grief that led directly to the addiction in in my understanding of what happened and it numbed so therefore i did not process i never did process any
1: of the grief i was a high functioning
2: alcoholic
1: so what was the tipping point at what at what moment did you realize that I need to get some help. Because in most cases, when we're addicted, it's even hard to realize.
2: Uh, well, it was, um, I would drive drunk and high. And one time I did that and I blacked out. So I was driving my, my daughter on the Upper Levels Highway in West Vancouver. And I, I blacked out. I did not have a car accident. But that was the first time I blacked out behind the wheel. And that was my bottom. That was my gift of desperation. Can't. It, it's amazing how many lines you cross and that you think you'd never cross. But th- that thank goodness I crossed that line and didn't have an accident because that was my gift of desperation. So that's when a couple of days after that... Um, I had a letter in the mail from the West Vancouver police saying the driver had seen me driving erratically on the upper levels highway. And so I was in my late husband's RX-7 convertible. It was May of 2002, so the weather was okay. And this hair was going, and I was probably yelling at my daughter, and I'm swerving. And so I got this report from the West Vancouver police and I asked the lawyer what I should do, and she said, "Well, just don't do anything. Just call me." And they did approach me, and I, but nothing happened. But I went to get except that I went to get help, and I clean and so I've been clean and sober since May third, two thousand and two.
1: Such a yeah. powerful story. I'm really glad that you're able to get help, and especially to to blank out with your child in a highway. And you're sitting here in front of me. This feels like a miracle.
2: I'm one of the lucky ones. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. How
1: did you interpret that, that survival?
2: I really think I was fortunate. And then I was determined. Mm. It, was a, it was truly a gift. Because the gift is what made me determined. And the divine intervention was that I didn't have the accident. Yeah, that was the divine intervention. Was the was the that I didn't have the accident, and that and the gift. Yeah, was that I had the blackout.
1: So how long was the 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 process when you went to the center? How long was that?
2: Well, so I went to a treatment center for a thirty day program. It was twelve step based, AA based, which is not for everybody, but it worked for me. And I I believe in AA because it works for people.
1: With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at NAMI.org.
1: I'm Sole and we continue with our conversation. Uh, Your book is a memoir. (laughs) It is hard writing memoirs because you have to dig deep, to dig deep into the past pain, some things that probably you are trying to forget and move on, but you have to confront it. What was the process like confronting your past and the uh, style of writing your memoir?
2: I was writing initially about the illnesses of my brother with AIDS and my husband with cancer. And when they were sick, I kept copious notes and I wrote notes and I kept the notes from the hospitals. So I had a lot, because I'm a journalist, I had a lot of research that I had, I could go through to, to write that. So the first part of the memoir is about the, my brother and my husband dying and me trying to take care of these two little girls who didn't know what that was going on. And then the second half of the memoir is when I go into recovery and get clean and sober. And then there's all documentation because I was working the 12 steps of AA. So I had all the Research for that so I had a lot of research <laughs> that, that uh that made it easy well <laughs> e- uh, it was simple I guess not easy but um made it straight and I did I did go and did do research some more at the hospitals to check up on some facts so that was the process of it I mean I, I loved to write and I I hired a. Uh, content editor, so I had deadlines because I can't get anything done without a deadline at all, absolutely nothing. So um, <laughs> I got the deadlines and then so, and then it was also ther- therapeutic to do it. It felt good to do it. It felt great because I loved to research and I loved to write and I was writing a book and it was exciting.
1: So, I mean, as a journalist, I mean, you're, you're writing facts, you're reporting facts, uh, but I, I believe there's a little difference when you're writing a memoir. Uh, because there's a lot of emotional connection that is needed there. Or was it easy? Did you find any any struggles?
2: Well, you should ask that.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. my editor, my content editor and publisher, Brooke Warner of She Writes Press, was a star, said when I she did my first draft, I believe that your background as a journalist gives you a disadvantage here because journalism is all about telling. It's about informing the reader of what happened. Memoir is the opposite. It's about evoking emotion. Hmm. So she encouraged me to show, not tell. So the second one, she says, Well, you've gotten stronger in dialogue, but your sensory details and reflection are often the places where I'm telling you you need to, you need more. You need to begin to feel into how to show, show, show. Narration, dialogue, sensory details, and reflection. So I had to learn.
1: Hmm. learn. (laughs) How easy was that (laughs) to learn?
2: (laughs) I just had to slow down and pay attention to sensory details. And she gave me great advice. It wasn't about just the facts, ma'am. It was just give all the information and then the facts come out after that. It was a disadvantage, but I had to learn. It was a good learning curve
1: for me. Yeah. So was there a part in your past as you're beginning to collect all the data to face and write this, were there parts that were most difficult for you to to face and that needed more time to emotionally process before you could put it down on paper?
2: I just sort of raced through it. It was afterwards when I was reading it, uh, like when I had to read the final versions, the um, advanced reading copies, as they call them in the business, the arcs. I'm like, "Oh God, like, this is heavy. <laughs> 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 I did have to kind of put it down and, and, and realize, oh yeah, this happened, and this was very heavy. So it was it was more later on when it was all done, that when I was digesting what I had done, that was more difficult.
1: Hmm. I mean, your book can I mean, there's emotion there, but there's also humor. So what do you think is the role of humor when we are dealing with these heavy topics?
2: Oh, I'm no expert on humor. <laughs> I um I just tend to be able tend to be able to laugh at myself and not take myself too seriously. And I think that's important. And other than that, I'm I'm not sure about the role of humor. I haven't really given it a lot of thought. Mm.
1: It's a good question. I think about that. Yeah. You know, what I like about you and your book is you live, you live with this authenticity. You know, you, you're able to, to be vulnerable. And I think we live in our Western culture. Uh, people always like to show strength, but you're comfortable living with this vulnerability. And I encourage our listeners, please, get a copy of this book through your life. Through what you've experienced in your life you're able now to teach us uh, to model you know a way that you know we can go through this but we can actually bounce back the people we've lost will always be with us and that death is that gap will always be there at some point and however difficult it is however dark hole that we got through we can actually bounce back and I find it a powerful lesson in resilience.
2: Yes, I'd like to think that part of the message is you can be okay. Like, look what happened to me, and I'm actually still okay. <laughs> it's
1: just,
2: I mean, I'm a work in progress, but I'm okay. A lot, a lot has come down. A lot has happened uh, to me and by me, and I'm okay today. Yeah. So that's an important message, I think, the resilience part. Yes.
1: Yeah. So what are your final thoughts to our listeners?
2: Well, I think that you too can be okay. There are certain things with grief and addiction, they share some commonalities. And one of them is acceptance. And we all know that's one of the stages of, of grief. And and that's huge with both. with With grief one needs to accept the fact that grief as we know is hard work grief takes time grief is exhausting so one needs i've heard your cheryl uh, christopher and other guests talk about this self-care rest grief is exhausting it's important to leave self-care and to me it's like sleep mm-hmm. um So acceptance in grieving, which includes self-care, it includes, to me, getting professional help. It helped me, uh, not necessarily for everybody. And then time, accept the fact that it takes time. And grief will never, ever go away. But it's like this jagged hole in your soul, but the edges will soften. Hmm. And then with addiction, I needed to accept the fact that I did this. I need to accept the shame and the guilt. And I need to dig into the shame and the guilt. Attack the wreckage of my past. And make amends to myself and to those who I harmed. And that is part of the acceptance. It's also part of, to me, it's acceptance. And the only way past it is through it. So with grief, it's that self-care, giving yourself the time, maybe professional help with addiction, it's attacking those demons of the past, getting help, making amends, understanding why I was numbing myself, and dealing with that, processing the grief. So the messages to me are acceptance. The only way past it is through it, and look at I'm okay. You can be okay too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Those are the important messages, I think. And if that if that helps anybody, then I feel I've been a success.
1: Well said. How can our listeners get a hold of you?
2: I have a website. So you can just go on the website and make contact there. That's the easiest way to do it. RosemaryKeevel.com or The Art of Losing It. The, just go to the title, The Art of Losing It, A Memoir of Grief and Addiction or RosemaryKeevil.com. And that's how you can reach me.
1: Rosemary, thank you very much.
2: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: That was Rosemary Kay for her book, The Art of Losing It. Please, I encourage you to get a copy. And uh, thank you very much for listening.
0: This show was brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to the show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.